We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I am very, very happy to be joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Adam Carolla. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me, Emily. Of course. Now, you have a new show with The Daily Wire that's called Truth Yeller. Is that right? That is correct. Truth Yeller. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about this show and, and what we, people can expect to see from it? Well, it's a six-part stand-up series. Uh, I go out. It, it, it's it's a kind of a hybrid stand-up show. I do stand-up at the top. Uh, then I bring out a guest. Uh, I think the first show is going to have Jay Leno in it. We do some stuff together. He does some of, some of his jokes. Um, then we'll do some set stand-up or some set comedy bits. And um, at the end, we'll, we'll before the show, I should backtrack, we have everybody, we hand out balls, and everyone writes one word on the ball, and we put it up in a big uh, bingo hopper. And at the end, whoever's up with me, in this case, it'll be Leno, he'll pull a ball out of the hopper, say the one word, and I'll do a stand-up bit on the word that's on the ball. When you started saying that you're handing out balls, I really thought this was going in sort of a man show direction. (laughs) It, It seems like it. Yeah, well, you should... When I do the show on the road, we call for ball pullers, and everyone makes a joke. But um, but we're 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 all adults here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, what's interesting actually is I, w- I wanted to ask you about this. In the sort of man show days, did you ever think that you know in twenty years you'd be teaming up with a conservative organization to be doing the act? Isn't that just such a funny? like i guess statement on where the different uh where the different ideologies have gone that in the sort of tipper gore days um you know when you were doing man show to now uh with a basically a conservative organization did you ever think it would turn out that way <laughs> no i mean you're right when i started off my career in radio in the uh mid 90s late 90s um if you got called in your programmer's office and they said, you know, somebody's complained, there's a problem. It was some religious organization that was on the right. If you get called in now, it's some group that's on the left. And the people that complain the most about the people who were complaining on the right were the people on the left. Now they're the people who are complaining the most about content and trying to censor everybody it's it's an interesting turnabout. Like I said, if you're if you're around long enough, you it is completely flipped around from the right to the left in terms of complaining. You know, being the word police. There's also something interesting about your background in that you're not. I, I just it seems to me that so many comedy writers and comedians now come from uh, pretty like upper class backgrounds. They go to fancy schools. Um, it's there's no like presence from the working class in Hollywood anymore. It seems is that your take on it as well? Yeah, I mean traditionally the blue collar guys didn't do comedy um, for. I mean, 
for the most part, it's, you know, the guys who use their minds were more the comedic guys, the guys who were educated, the guys who came from people who use their words and not their hands. You know, I just happened to come from a background where I used my hands. I was a carpenter and a boxing coach and that I was very blue collar I never went to college. I, I barely graduated high school. So I, I come from a very blue collar, you know, drove a truck on and on and on. Uh, <clears throat> so I just happened to be one of the few guys who went from the sort of the blue collar world into the white collar world of comedy. But even a lot of the guys who kind of claim to be blue collar comedians come from a more white collar world that just becomes a, an act. Hmm. And is it also the case that it's just harder to speak to those audiences anyway now? So even if you are, uh, you know, one of the people that's trying to appeal to a blue collar audience, I'm thinking like uh, Last Man Standing and, and Tim Allen, um, a show that was really successful, but that literally didn't get picked up. Um, is it just that it's it's more difficult to speak to those those audiences right now? Because that's those kind of acts, those kinds of shows, they just aren't getting greenlit by studios and executives. Well, studios and executives and <clears throat> HBO and Netflix are, you know, two things simultaneously. They're they're snobs for sure. They're they're sort of intellectual snobs. Um, but well, they're actually there's three things at work. They're sort of intellectual snobs. So it's about they want to work with people that can go to a cocktail party and say, I'm working with this person or that person. And and Tim Allen doesn't get them much traction at the cocktail party. So (laughs) number one, they're snobs. Uh, Number two, they don't know that there is a world that exists between, you know, Malibu and Manhattan. They just, they have no idea that there's a whole middle of the country, you know, regular people, working people. They don't, those are sort of, you know, smelly Walmart shoppers. They're not interested in those people. And number three, they're, they're people who never stop complaining about McCarthyism. But if you don't agree with them on every social issue, they want nothing to do with you and they would like you be platformed. So they, they certainly don't help. So <clears throat> me being on Netflix or me being on HBO is a complete non-starter. They would never let me on their network. Mm. Do you get the sense that these audiences, I don't know, I just, I look at someone like Joe Rogan um, and it's like, he has this huge following that was totally under the nose of, or it was happening under the noses of so many people in media, whether it's news media or entertainment media, they really had no idea that that, that that was coming. And is it your sense that audiences are actually really eager for that kind of content that you'll be doing on Truth Yeller with Daily Wire, that it's just sort of like, there are no boundaries, you can just sort of be free and relaxed and, and do comedy? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I always kind of use the analogy of there's a whole bunch of Italian food places and you want to open a Mexican food place or a German food place or a Thai or Japanese. And they're always surprised when there's a line down the street to get into your restaurant 
but it's because it doesn't really exist. I mean, you, you know, you look at Gutfeld, for instance, you know, there was no late night conservative or sort of right leaning or Fox watching or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to label it. It just wasn't there. All the, all the late night skewed to the left. And so all the late night were Italian restaurants and, and Gutfeld opened up a Mexican restaurant and got a lot of hungry people going over there. And that's just kind of the way I, I look at it. So much of it is, you know, it's the country is basically split in half politically, but 92% of the comedy is for one half. So it makes sense to do alternative stuff for the other half. It's confusing because on the same time, everything that you described um, of uh, the sort of business side of Hollywood, they do still want to make money. And it seems so silly then to make comedy for, you know, 90% of the make, make com comedy that's not for 90% of the country. How do you explain how we ended up there? Well, I mean, you, you talked about comedy, you know, if, who... When you go into one of these networks and you meet with executives, who are you meeting with? I mean, you're meeting with college-educated people that are sort of ended up in L.A. or ended up in New York, right? So it's a self-selecting group right there, right? Like, if those guys were... If I went in and met with a bunch of pipe fitters and welders and uh, drywall contractors, <laughs> there would be a completely different sensibility, right? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the arc of Howard I'm, Stern. <laughs> yeah, I'm meeting, I'm meeting with a bunch of people who've been through the system. They've been through, they went to the best colleges, they moved to L.A., they surrounded themselves with those people, and that's their sensibility now. But they're they're picking the menu for the country, but but they're all of a like mind and and sort of lean the same direction. It's been interesting because it seems like there's something happening in that the more and more the more people are sort of emboldened by uh, folks like you not really giving a damn about what the restrictions and the boundaries are. Um, it actually does seem like there's a lot of good stuff happening right now. Do you agree with that? And do you think that people are just getting so sick of this? It's it's being resisted and creating some really good stuff. Yeah, I I agree. There's something you know, good has probably come of it, which is people kind of pushing back and exploring new things creatively. And, you know, it's kind of interesting as we, as I think about it, which is when I was starting out, as I, as I told you, it was about the words you could say, you know, you couldn't say certain words. You couldn't say the S word or the F word or, you know, you just they just have words you couldn't say. Now it's ideas you can't express, which is much more dangerous if you think about it. You know what I mean? So 
you couldn't say I disagree with Black Lives Matter or make a joke about Black Lives Matter or make a joke about Hunter Biden and his laptop or whatever it is. You couldn't. These these people are not the word police. You could cuss all you wanted. They're the idea police. And that is an incredible distinction because it gets to this place where you can't even, I mean, it, the, the Dave Chappelle one is a good example. The guy is completely pro-trans. He's pro all of these different leftist ideas, but he can't have a question about maybe the excesses of transgenderism. And so when you're just banning um, ideas instead of words, it, you're shutting off so much. What did you think about the backlash to the, the most recent Chappelle special? Well, I mean, a, I, I think we're all used to it by now because every 10 minutes there's a new outrage. You know what I mean? Like part of it is part of me sort of yawns like, okay, someone's outraged. The other part is, is I don't really break down the game film that far. He's a comedian. He has, he has, he has ideas. He has an audience. He has a microphone. He's allowed to say what he wants to say. I I don't know. I, I I don't really break it down. I mean, obviously the trans community, and it's a pretty good example of how it works. The trans community makes up you know less than one percent of the community, but half of Hollywood mobilizes. You know that's what they do. They mobilize around this community or that community. They're just virtue signaling. Obviously, they don't care about the trans community. They don't care about the trans community. They worry about signaling to you that they care about the trans community. Never heard about the trans community in 25 years. Right. Um, yeah, that's it's it's completely theatrical. Um, although I guess I think this was a Gutfeld tweet a couple of days ago about Reese Witherspoon and Rittenhouse. He said, you know, Hollywood actresses can't avoid a script. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but right in in the sense that there's, I think there's it's an interesting thing about how there isn't a lot of content. And this, I mean, you can look at our education system. You can look at a lot of sort of areas and institutions of our society. There's been a feminization and there's not a lot of stuff for men anymore. Um, even when they try to make stuff for men, um, it just, it's, it's not, you know, really appealing to men. And that's why, uh, websites like Barstool and shows like yours are still really popular because this people who aren't getting it from any of those like so-called mainstream institutions. Do you also see that there's just like, a struggle for people to actually appeal to men because what men like is not going to be within the boundaries of political correctness. Uh, do you do you think that's also a sort of under underserved population in today's kind of cultural climate? Well, they also, you know, if we're talking about sort of the mainstream purveyors of, of comedy, they don't really know what men like. You know what I mean? Like, do you think anyone on the SNL writing staff knows what men like. <laughs> they have no idea what men like. They live in sort of feminine world. That it, again, not not a lot of them are, are were former ranchers or pipe fitters. They're just guys who went through college and know how to get along. So I, I don't know that they could create anything that men like because they're somewhere in between a man and a woman themselves. Like why <laughs> you think anyone at SNL has their finger on the pulse of what men like? <laughs> right. 
But I mean, it's it's amazing because they used to be able to do this stuff. It seems as though they they used to be able to do this stuff better. If you even if you look at like someone who's not even a blue collar guy, like the Dean Martin show, uh, decades ago. I mean, it just it used to be it just was so different. If anything, back then they were really bad at marketing or speaking to women. Um, but the flip has been I don't know. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> um, w- one question I have is w- about. Norm Macdonald, um, a friend of yours, what do you think uh, made Norm so great? And uh, what are we going to be missing in the future um, after this loss? Um, well, I mean, I, we like Norm first and foremost because he was funny, for sure. And then number two, because we felt like he spoke his mind. You know, he was kind of I, you know, I hate when people say courageous or bold or whatever, but he was kind of courageous that way or, or fearless that way. You know, he just said what he wanted and was very funny when he said it. He also picked angles where we didn't know where it was going to end up, you know, so <clears throat> he would surprise you with with the punchline because you didn't beat him to the punchline. A lot of comedians or comedy, I can arrive at the punchline during the setup because I know where they're going, but I never knew where Norm was going. So I think he was irreverent. I think he was fearless. And I think he said what he wanted to say. But most of all, he was funny. I mean, let's not forget, ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, that's your job. You got to be funny. (laughs) I'm wondering, uh, the, the Daily Wire is doing some very interesting stuff, and it seems as though by getting into movies, by getting into TV, it could be a real test um, to Hollywood because it's, you know, you can, you can make a TV show and it doesn't have to air on, uh, you know, NBC on Thursday night uh, to be successful anymore because of the way the, the industry has changed. Do you think that, uh, do you think that what the Daily Wire is doing? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just, do you think, do you think this actually it could be a serious threat to Hollywood? Um, that these these types of projects that are happening outside the the so called mainstream um, are able to be really popular and uh, could actually be something that sort of shakes Hollywood out of its silliness. Uh, yeah, time will tell. I think ultimately it will. I don't know that Hollywood feels threats. I mean, look at the Oscars. They took a Tiffany franchise and they screwed it up by overwoking it, you know, mm-hmm. but they just go more woke each year. The ratings go down each year and they don't care. Mm. So that's the, that's the beauty of Hollywood. They, they just, you'd think they would care, but they, they really don't. They're on a, they're on a mission and they don't care how much market share they lose. Which is amazing because you'd think they would care about, at least at the end of the day, the money. Um, but even that, it does seem like they just are leaving so much on the table by not uh, pursuing any of these kind of heterodox or politically incorrect projects. Um, do they even know that? You know, it's sort of like, you know, think about politicians, you know. The, the Democrats are... are on the ropes right now, but they're not really correcting course. They're kind of doubling down 
on the woke stuff. So, you know, you could compare Hollywood a lot to the Democratic Party, which is, okay, the people are kind of speaking and they'd like you to tack more toward the center uh, and they go harder the direction they're going. And it's basically the same equivalent to me. Yeah, it's it's it is strange. It seems like they have no idea um, how completely out of touch they are with with everybody else. Um, so the the show is is part stand up, and then you you have guests. So it's sort of like a hybrid kind of talk show and stand up thing, right? Yes, that is correct. What made you want to do uh, a little bit of both? A little bit of uh, the interview format and a little bit of the stand up format. Well, I, you know, if you're going to do six hour long specials, you know, um, most comedians don't have six hours of fresh comedy laying around, you know, stand up work, stand up bits. A part of it is practical, you know, you can go up there, do 15 minutes at the top of stand up and then bring the guests. The other is, is just to kind of shake up the format, do something a little different than a kind of talking head stand-up special, and also I love to improvise, so I wanted to bring people up on stage who I like and improvise with them. Can you tell us, maybe you can't, can you tell us of any guests other than than Jay Leno, or are you still sort of in the process of uh, booking people? Um, We have, um, and and some of these aren't aren't locked in stone, but uh, they look they look pretty good. Uh, I'm going to do one with Patrick Warburton. I'm going to do one with TJ Miller. And we have uh, William Shatner, too. Maybe, I'm not sure if we're going to do one with Megan Kelly, or there's a couple other voices, a couple other people floating around out there. It's a little bit fluid. We're locking it in. But uh, so far, looks like uh, those those three, uh, Shatner, T.J. Miller, that's awesome. and uh, Patrick Warburton. Yeah. That's, that's a great lineup. Uh, that's really exciting. And again, just I think a really big deal. Um, and one thing, I was on the set of uh, Terror on the Prairie, which is the one of the Daily Wire movies that should be coming out next year. And it was really, really interesting to talk to some of the crew, um, people who have been around Hollywood their entire careers, but who just sort of quietly want to do something different, disagree with a lot of the ideological orthodoxy in Hollywood. And that's kind of what brought them to the the crew. That's kind of what brought them to the film and to the Daily Wire. Are you having a similar experience? Like, is it, are there enough people, like talented people in Hollywood to uh, scrape away at, you know, and, and bring them over to, to write for your show and to produce for your show? Um, is that sort of a, is there a similar, is, is something like that really happening? Well, we do a lot. We do almost everything in-house because I have a production company and uh, I write most of it and, you know, kind of produce most all of it. So we haven't really had to try to lure people away from Hollywood yet. But, yeah, there's a lot of uh, Muranos, if you get that reference, which is a lot of people that are sort of quietly disagree, but they can't say anything they can't voice anything because they don't want to be ostracized and and excommunicated so there is a large group that hollywood is unaware of that doesn't really like 
the orthodoxy that would like to go somewhere else where they didn't have to pretend to, you know, be down with the trans community, for instance, and, but they want to work and they're scared. So you're going to attract, yeah, the Daily Wire is definitely going to attract a lot of those people. Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from talking to people on the crew. I couldn't believe how many of them were just actually like career Hollywood people who were so sick of it that they wanted to take a risk, go out to Montana um, and work on the film. Um, before I let you go, Adam, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I have to ask about your cameo on Dawson's Creek. Um, why? And uh, t just tell us a little bit about that experience. <laughs> well, you know... I was on a show on MTV and on the radio called Loveline, and it was in the zeitgeist. Like yes. it was just a thing that was out there that everyone knew about. So, you know, when you're writing an episode of an episodic, you know, TV show or whatever, I did a fair amount of cameos of like, "Hey, it's Adam from um, from Loveline," you know, "Hey, it's Adam Carroll from Loveline," it's Doctor Drew from Loveline. They they used to do a lot of those in the nineties and the early two thousands. So we were just kind of in the zeitgeist. And I, I suppose people who wrote for the show may have been fans of Loveline or Dr. Drew or whatever. So they would just write it into the script. And, and there was a fair amount of that. I guess they don't really do that that much anymore, but back then, you know, Loveline was pretty ubiquitous. We didn't have to explain who these guys were the, the the kids of Dawson Creek were in the Loveline demo. It all just kind of made sense, but it's ultimately probably just lazy writing. <laughs> um, no, that's really funny. I also like how on the show they let you sort of it was they let you really mirror the the actual dynamic of Loveline at the time, and you were you were sort of the tough love uh, person uh, even in the the sort of skit that was on the on the show. I had to ask about that. I'm a big Dawson's Creek. Yeah, well, if you want, well, if you're a big Dawson's Creek fan, you should know that um, we filmed that in where North Carolina, yeah. I guess. Wilmington, probably. Um, yeah, Wilmington. So the thing is, is I did it. Dr. Drew and I did a nightly syndicated radio show. We did Loveline. Loveline was on NPM to midnight on the West Coast. So we still had to do our syndicated radio show for the week we're in Wilmington, right? So with the time difference, we worked from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Every night we're in Wilmington and then had to be on the set at 7 a.m. to shoot Dawson's Creek. Oh so I, I would get, I would get back to my hotel room at 3.30 in the morning every night, go to bed at 4 and then wake up at 6.30 and go shoot Dawson's Creek. So <laughs> if I look a little bit tired, uh, that was the schedule. Just, I imagine just very precious memories in your life. <laughs> oh God, I'm still angry. <laughs> Well, Adam Carolla, he's, uh, of course, uh, the the host of the new show coming out with The Daily Wire, Truth Yeller. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Emily. Absolutely. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm -hmm.